Welcome to this uh, special seminar by Mormons uh, by MI. Uh, we're very pleased that David Leblanc or Blaine, Leblanc, uh, uh, comes to, our, uh, came to, came to, to this uh, seminar today, and uh, we're very, very uh, happy that uh, actually um, you, you have this conference in, in, in London, and that you could be to come over to talk to today. Um, professor Leblanc is um, a professor of governance and uh, as chair of the Department of Politics at the uh, University of Virginia. He has a PhD in political science from Vanderbilt University, and he's a faculty associate at the Miller Center in the Gage program. Gage means the governing governing uh, America in the global era, and uh, the role uh, you have organized. Uh, a big conference or workshop on high school migration uh, policy quite recently. He has uh, co-authored a, a book um, in 2006 on democratic politics and financial markets, uh, pricing politics, so that was the, the field you worked on quite extensively uh, a few years ago, and then you shifted your interest more to migration issues and the political economy of migration, and that field uh, uh, We'll also, uh, you will also give this uh, presentation today uh, entitled uh, Define the Law of Gravity, the Political Economy of International Immigration. We're very happy that uh, you give us this talk. And I think to some of you, uh, I circulate the, the working paper, so you might have this, this background. All right, well, thanks Thank so much. you very much. And thanks, everybody, uh, for being a, a interested in what I'm going to talk about. Um, one, two, two notes. Uh, the first is uh, I tend to talk uh, faster than I would prefer. So don't hesitate to interrupt me and ask me to repeat myself. And the second is I don't know what the customs are, but uh, I'm happy to take questions, both specific or substantive questions, at any time. So uh, don't, don't worry about interrupting me. Uh, this project is... Uh, we've been working on this project for a very long time. Um, as as Matthias said, uh, uh, I've written a book on financial markets and financial crises, and my timing um, as a political scientist has, has never been better. I gave up working on financial crises in 2006, right, right before the, the world went into crisis. Um, uh, it just so happens that, that migration was important then and continues to be important, and I approach migration as, as a political economist, trying to think about the various factors that push and pull people from one place uh, to another. At the LSE uh, tomorrow, I'm going to be talking about a related project uh, looking at the sorts of policies that sending countries use in order to, main con in order to maintain connections with their diaspora. Um, and I'm happy to circulate that paper if you will. But this, this paper uh, really came out of a, a very basic question um, asking why do people... <laughs> Why do people go where they go? Right? We're interested in, in that very fundamental question, and it's written with a, a colleague of mine, uh, Jennifer Fitzgerald, and uh, Jessica Teach, who was one of our graduate students and is now an assistant professor at Middlebury College. 
right? And so the question that we ask here is what determines international flows of labor? And I use the language labor here generically. That is to say, I'm, I cannot differentiate in the data between labor migrants or people who have migrated for the purposes of family reunification. The only reason I use the word labor is because we're trying to distinguish the, the types of flows that we're looking at from refugees. Right? We're not looking at, at forced migrants. Um, we are looking at people who choose to leave for whatever reason uh, they are choosing to leave. And we would argue, and again, this paper was written five, six years ago, that this is an ignored part of, of globalization. Right? We know a lot about international trade. I would argue too much uh, about international trade. We know, we know what, what, why countries export. We know why countries import. We know the role that international organizations play in governing flows of, of commodities. We know almost as much about the cross-border flow of capital, right? We know when rich countries choose to invest. We know what countries who demand capital do in order to attract capital. And we know the role of international institutions like the WTO. We know about the importance of, of bilateral investment treaties. And we know about the IMF. But we don't know as much, and we certainly don't know anything about the parallels uh, to the flow of, of labor, right? to labor migration. Okay? We, we know that in terms of policy, most of the barriers to trade have been dismantled. Very few tariff barriers outside of agriculture. Very few non-tariff barriers, relatively speaking. Okay. In terms of capital, even with the financial crisis, most countries don't have active or high capital controls. Right? So the barriers to the mobility of capital and the barriers to the mobility of, of, of commodities have come down, certainly if we, if we begin this historical narrative at the end of World War II. Right? Yet the same thing can't be said about barriers to the movement of people, and you all know that. Right? I mean, this is, this is your bread and butter you know, as, as, as we think about you know, the kind of work you all do here. Right? So those barriers haven't, haven't come down. What we, what we complain about in terms of the literature is not that there's no literature on international immigration, but that the existing scholarship tends to focus on the consequences or the effects of immigration. We were talking at lunch about the literature that looks at, at immigration or the, or the assimilation of, of immigrants. We look at the response of, of uh, policies or polities to immigration. Right? So we know a lot about the different sorts of things that give rise to far-right governments or radical right governments. We know something about what countries give expansive citizenship policy, but we don't know anything about the consequences of those policies. And that's something that we, that we engage in this paper. Right? So to give you some context, right, and again, this is nothing, uh, nothing startling or new to you, we can think about, uh, about the flows of, of migrants, and this, uh, these, these are flows over, to, over the period 2000 to 2004, and again, the United States and Germany, Italy tend to be major destinations of immigration, but there's tremendous variation even as we look across, uh, the major, uh, as we look across major OECD countries. Okay. And so what we're interested in here is the idea that there is this variation. Okay? And there's variation even when we think about the traditional countries or destinations of immigration. You know, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, the United States. Tremendous variation across those countries. And there's even tremendous variation when we think about the new destinations. Spain, uh, Portugal, Greece. 
right? So it's really interesting to us to try and figure out why there, this variation exists. And then also interesting to think about why this variation exists over time, right? So why are our countries open at some point, or I shouldn't say open, but why at some points in time do countries receive more migrants than they do at other points in time? And we can think about changes in labor market conditions, right? This is all the buzz in the United States, right? If you, if you read uh, the discussions about, about immigration, immigration policy reform in the US, some people who are very pro-immigration reform say it doesn't really matter, the Mexicans aren't coming anymore, right? In fact, there's, there's zero net migration from Mexico into the United States, and in part that's because uh, the labor market in the United States is in pretty bad shape, and we could probably make the same argument about the UK or about Germany um, or other countries. But the other part that's really important here is that these countries have altered their citizenship policy. And we think about, in this paper, we think about the political environment, right? the environment that is conducive to quality of life, for lack of a better term, uh, the things that allow migrants to have a uh, uh, economic, political, and social opportunities. And I'll talk more about that. Um, later on. And this is just, I can just talk about this. There, there's some, some other pieces to this project um, on immigration. I mentioned this, this paper um, on harnessing the diaspora that I'll talk about tomorrow. I recently published a paper um, looking at the effect of immigration on cross-border capital flows. Um, and then I uh, have a paper with uh, a colleague at, at Duke, Sarah Bermeo, where we look at foreign aid and how that affects how immigration affects patterns and allocation of foreign aid. And again, I'm, I'm happy to, to talk about that. I should also note, um, as a latecomer to, to the study of immigration, uh, everything to me now is immigration, right? I look at a project, you know, as a political scientist, and it's like, wow, there's an immigration spin on that. So, you know, I, 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 I can't see anything and not think about immigration. So it's kind of exciting uh, to talk to people who, I guess this is, this is what you do all the time. Right. I mean, I haven't. Um, so I'm interested in your in your thoughts. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's really you know I can't believe it took me this long to, to to discover it. Right. So what do we know? Right. What do we know? Well, we know economics is is costly. Right. We can go back to the wealth of nations. It appears evidently from experience that man is of all sorts of luggage the most difficult to be transported. Right. Moving from place to place is very expensive. John Hicks says what matters when we think about, about mobility is differences in wages. Um, and then there's a huge economics literature that supports this idea. Right. That supports the idea that people move for relative wages. If I'm going to make an immigration decision, I compare my ex the expected value of wages in my home country to the expected value of wages in a, uh, in a host country, net of the costs of moving, and if that difference is positive, then I move, and if it's not, I stay. Pretty simple, pretty elegant, lots of empirical evidence to support it. I think it's, it's pretty incomplete. Second argument, or set of arguments, comes from comes from sociology or demography, that social networks matter, right? We think about, about social networks or co-ethnic networks in a variety of different ways. Co-ethnic networks provide information about possible destinations. How do I know if there are job opportunities? How do I know if people discriminate? How do I know if I'm gonna be able to find a home? I get that information through social networks or as we think about them, co-ethnic networks which provides information, reduces these costs and generally reduces uh, the cost of migration. We can also think of uh, social networks as being 
co-ethnic networks that decrease the risk of moving. Right? Anytime we think about migration, we're thinking about individuals who are consciously undertaking or engaging in risky behavior. Because what, what, is, what is occurring, when we think about labor migration, what is occurring in the host country is, is unknown or is relatively unknown. And social networks provide social safety nets in large measure in case something goes wrong. Right? And we know this from, from a lot of work, um, both uh, case study work and kind of broad sociological uh, work on this. Okay? So what we argue is, is in line with, with both of these sorts of, s sorts of arguments, and that's that migrants minimize risk. Okay? We do not dispute the idea that migrants move to places where there are prospects for economic gain. Right? We're not saying that the economists are wrong. Okay? We, we think they're right, okay? but we think that's only half the story. Same, similarly, we don't think that the sociologists are, are, are incorrect. Right? In fact, we think that they are largely correct. Right? But we argue that what's missing here is a political dimension. So if you think about risk, and if you think about economic gain, two things matter. In terms of economic gain, you, must, you have to have access to the labor market. Okay? Just because relative wages in country A are higher than, than, than wages in your home country doesn't mean you're going to move unless you have some sense of assurance that you can access the labor market. Similarly, if you think about political risk, drawing on the, 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 this literature from the New Economics of Immigration, we argue that people don't just minimize the risks to themselves, but they minimize the risks that affect their family as well. Okay? And so those kinds of risks are, are ones that we think more generally uh, in, in terms of political risks and the rights that individuals all will have as citizens. Okay. Okay. So again, we assume that migration flows to destinations with relatively higher wages, right, net of transaction costs. We, excuse me, we assume that migrants are drawn to destinations with higher probabilities of employment, right, employment prospects matter a great deal, okay? And again, we assume that migrants are drawn to destinations with better social safety nets, right? That is, again, in case there is an employment shock or a social welfare shock, if you're unemployed, if there's a, so, and you become unemployed, if there's a social safety net, then you don't have to, you don't have to turn, leave, and go back home. You can rely on the kindness of of not strangers, right, but the kindness of people in your social network. Okay. But what we argue here is that political incorporation or the opportunity for political incorporation is very important. Okay. The opportunity to become politically incorporated provides migrants with a set of rights, or to put it differently, it decreases different kinds of risks. So when we think about the political environment, we think about the ability that migrants have to become citizens and to then consequently influence uh, future policy. We think about the ability to get access to the labor market or the amount of time it takes to access the labor market. And we also think about the rights that are associated with children who are born in that country, right? If you were born in a particular country or you have children that are born in a particular country, do those children get the rights that are associated with, with uh, all citizens in that country. And we conceive of these rights as part of different parts of citizenship. Okay? And these citizenship offers, if you want to think about this in terms of a cost-benefit analysis, these citizenship policies are offers that are made by competing destinations as they seek migrants. And we also think that migrants look across these different destinations when they're choosing different host countries. Okay? We should, we should add here that citizenship rights do not ensure 
that a community will be tolerant. It was very interesting uh, at lunch to, to hear the, the, an example of Israel. Right? Israel is working very hard, as I learned, to attract uh, high-skilled foreign migrants, and they afford them with, with some rights. Right? But the environment there is one that is not necessarily tolerant of people who are different. Okay? Especially in this case, people who are, who are not Jewish. Okay? Um, and so we think about this more generally and say even if individuals are granted rights, even if there are opportunities for dual citizenship, even if you have children and they get and enter citizenship by, by soil, that does not mean that the environment uh, in a particular country is going to be tolerable, is going to be one of tolerance or acceptability. Okay. And so what we look at here is we look at, across countries, we look at support for extreme right-wing parties. Most of the time these parties uh, run on, not strictly, but certainly uh, anti-immigration tends to be a, a large part or a large plank of, 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 their, of their policies. Um, but we think about uh, support for extreme right-wing parties as a signal. Uh, a signal that the political environment is one that's not going to be very tolerant or exceedingly tolerant uh, for migrants. It doesn't matter if, if members of the right-wing party actually get a seat in parliament. We're simply looking at the vote share because that's an indicator of public attitude or public opinion um, regarding the hospitality or hostility of a particular destination. Okay. And we argue in the paper that these citizenship policies are really important. Right? So how do we think about the substantive importance of, these polit of the political environment? And we argue in the paper, and I'll show you some, some evidence, that the political environment actually trumps other sorts of concerns, specifically employment-based concerns and distance-based concerns that have traditionally found to be driving factors when we think about international immigration. Okay. So how do we test the argument? And here's where um, I'm going to gloss over some of the some of the, the the data pieces, but happy to talk about them in, in more detail. Right. So we are interested in, and I don't know how well you can see that. We're interested in in, my, in migrant flows into country I. So there's three. This is indexed by three letters. So migrants flowing into country I from country J at time T. Okay. So we have we have a large dyadic panel data set. Okay. I is our set of destination countries, and in the paper we look at 17 destination countries. J is the sending country, and in, in this paper we assemble data from 170 sending countries, and T is time. We have data from 2000, um, 2000 from um, 1980 to 2004 or 2005 uh, in this paper. Okay, and it's incomplete. I mean, it's not. It's not a. It's not a. Those of you who 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 care about uh, data and statistics, it's not a really gorgeous panel, right? There's lots of missing data uh, here and there. Um, we can talk about that. Um, and we argue that that migration flows uh, into country I from country J at time T are a function of the following variables. We look at the lagged level of flows. That is to say. What happened last year is probably a pretty good indicator of what's happening this year. We also control for the stock of migrants. Um, as we think about social networks, our proxy for social networks is the stock of migrants in a particular country from that homeland. So uh, Kenyans uh, are more likely to go to countries where there is a large Kenyan or relatively large Kenyan population. 
We control for the income differential, right? So we agree with the economists that we should look at the at income in the origin country or the home country and income in the host country. So we look at the differential in, in incomes. We look at distance, right? This is what the sociologists uh, um, and the geographers have told us and the economists have told us, political scientists have told us, distance matters, right? The further two countries are from one another, the more difficult it is, the more costly, the more expensive it is to move between those two countries. We also think that um, that immigration is going to, to is going to be uh, easier from a transaction cost point of view uh, between countries that share a common official language, right? Especially if we think about labor market opportunities and political incorporation, it's easier to move from a country where uh, you speak the language. It's easier to move to a country where where you already speak the language. If the two countries share a border, we we expect there to be more migration, and if the two countries have been colonized by the same country, if they have a common colonizer. We expect there to be more immigration. Okay. We then look at, at destination factors, and I should, I should say we include a set of destination fixed effects. Um, and we do that for a variety of reasons. One is that there are baseline differences between countries as we think about um, the desirability of, of a particular country as a destination. And it's also because different countries have different kinds of policies, and I'll, I'll, I'll amend that in a second. We include the unemployment rate in the destination country, right? If we believe that people move for economic opportunity, then unemployment matters a great deal, right? The, the higher the unemployment rate, if we think about, we can think about the unemployment rate as a proxy for the inverse of the probability of getting a job, right? The higher the unemployment rate, the more, the less likely it is that I'm going to be able to find employment in a particular country, right? We use two measures of immigration policy, okay? And I'll start with, with this, uh, with the second one. This is the view of, Im of, of immigration policy restrictiveness. So the United Nations um, Population Division uh, for years has been doing surveys of I, want to, I would like to say key officials, but I don't know that these are key officials. And if those of you who are familiar with this data, um, uh, will probably be familiar with this. They ask a question whether, and they say, do you think that the level of, of immigration is uh, too, high. too high, too low, or just right? Okay, I, I gotta be honest with you, I don't really know what in the world they're measuring, all right? But we include this just to see if it's consistent with the, with the variables that we've put together ourselves, all right? It is a, it's a proxy at least for what the government thinks their policy should be, or at least a single, person's, a single person in the government's view of what that policy should be. I cannot tell you that I think it's a great measure, okay? We put together a measure, well, we build on, on the work that uh, Anna Marie Maida has done um, and that was extended by Giovanni Perry. Um, and then we extend it just in terms of adding a few countries and uh, updating it. And what Anna Maria did is she said, we really can't measure cross-country variation in, in immigration policy very well, but what we can do is we can construct a chronology for each country and then look within country at whether immigration policy has become increasingly restrictive or increasingly liberal. Right. And so we tend, and so what we're doing here is we're looking at year-on-year -year changes in the in the restrictiveness or the liberalness of immigration policy. That's another reason why we have to include these destination fixed effects because this variable only applies, and we can only interpret this in terms of within-country variation. Right. So we take that and we extend it. I mean, it, there's nothing there's nothing new or magical about it, but it gives us a sense of, of whether policy has become increasingly liberal or increase or increasingly restrictive.
And then we add our variables, right? The things that we're particularly interested in, right? And we argue that the political environment is a function of five different characteristics, four of which we will lump together into an, into an index, okay? We look at whether the country allows dual citizenship. That is to say, if I apply and obtain citizenship in the UK, am I compelled by law to give up my Mexican citizenship or my American citizenship or my Italian citizenship? We argue that, 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 that my potential migrants are more likely to move to countries that allow for dual citizenship. We look and see whether a country uh, practices jusoli uh, or right, and argue that, that, that migrants are more likely to go to countries that has a, a regime of citizenship by birth so that their children, if they are born there, uh, if their future children, you know what I mean, um, will end up having citizenship rights in that particular country. We think that that's going to make immigration more likely. We look and see whether or not there is mandatory language testing for residency. Mandatory language testing, we argue, would be a deterrent to immigration. We look at the length of the residency requirement. How long does it actually take to become eligible to be a resident in a particular country? And we argue that the longer that residency requirement, the less likely uh, we are to see large flows of migration into that country, right? And so those are our, our measures of the citizenship regime. And then our fifth variable here is support for radical right-wing parties. And here we use a variety of different, uh, of different operationalizations. We get the same, the same basic result. We argue that in countries where the radical right has higher support, that that's a signal of a lack of tolerance for foreigners. Right, or for people who are different. And that in countries where there's higher levels of, of right-wing support, you're gonna see uh, lower, lower flows of migrants. Okay. Now, you might say but you forgot all about the push factors, right? All we're looking at here are destination factors. And if you were to say, what about push factors, you would be exactly right, right? We ignore push factors, okay? Theoretically, at least. One of the reasons we ignore push factors is because when we first wrote this paper, we included a laundry list of push factors, and you can never make a reviewer happy, okay? You can never make a reviewer happy that you haven't included their uh, pet push factor. It could be an economic downturn. It could be a, a, an environmental crisis. It could be a civil war. It could be a level of democracy. Oh my gosh, people told us we needed to control for human rights or elections. And, 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 and our response here is we don't care. We're really interested on the receiving side, not the sending side. So what we do statistically is we dummy that out. Okay. So we include 4,130 dummy variables. Okay, so we essentially take every sending country and multiply it by, um, or not multiply, but we include a dummy variable for every sending country year. So IT has been dummied out entirely, right? Makes estimation really not that much more difficult, right? Especially because we're estimating OLS models, right? But that's what we do and that's what takes into account anything on the sending side that is unmeasured. Right. Again, that's our. I like that, that we call them dummy variables, right? Because it says we're dumb about the factors that are causing, that are pushing people to leave. And in this paper, we're very comfortable uh, being dumb. Okay. So our sample here is 18 OECD countries, as I said, from 1980 to 2006, 175 source countries. We collected um, this data by going to national statistical agencies. There's a little bit of variance here. Almost every country measures migrants by their country of birth. Two countries, Austria 
and it's in the paper, but I can't remember off the top of my head. Austria and one other country reports migrants by country of origin. So we don't know if, you know, if, if a migrant comes in through Austria, or I'm sorry, a migrant has come to Austria, we don't know if they're Kenyan, for example. We simply know that they, that they came from Kenya to Austria. And there's one other country that reports it that way. And again, I can't remember which one. Um, we, it, we estimate these models by, by ordinarily squares. Um, I should say we, we, we estimate dyad standard errors. Um, we do all kinds of robustness tests. We use negative binomial models. We use dynamic uh, models. I'm happy to talk about that. That's, not, that's for robustness. That's not really the, the, the centerpiece of the paper. And here are the results, right? So I've chopped off everything else to make this easy to see. I should also say if you look at a, if you look at the version of the paper that um, Matthias sent uh, prior to Sunday, these results might be a little bit different. We found some errors last week and uh, corrected them and sent uh, a new version around, right? But here are the basic results in the sense that we estimate a whole bunch of models. Um, start and we, we include the citizenship variables individually, and they are all signed uh, and in the expected direction. Countries that have destinations that have higher right-wing party support receive fewer migrants. Same as countries that have a, a, res a longer residency requirement, dual citizenship, citizenship by birth, and no language requirement all have a positive and statistically significant effect. One of the problems here is that, is that these variables, these four characteristics of a country, they're highly collinear. Okay? So entering all these variables together leads us with a, with a little bit of nonsense. So we, we construct a, a, an indicator of migrant rights, which is this plus this plus this minus this. Right? So they're equally weighted. Um, they're equally weighted measures. We include them together, and again, we get a, we get a positive and statistically significant effect, even when we include right-wing parties. The question then then is, how important are these? Well, we can we can see uh, this better graphically, I think, than uh, simply looking at numbers. And here, I just graph the effect of first differences. So, if we take any of these variables from one standard deviation below the mean and adjust it to one standard deviation above the mean, this is the predicted effect, along with its standard error, the predicted effect on bilateral migration flows. Okay, and we find. Um, that countries that have a foreign language, and I should say for the dummy variables, it's a change from, from zero to one. Countries that share a common language, uh, it's expected to increase uh, immigration by a little less than 1%, dyadically speaking. And you can do, again, similar sorts of experiments for, for all of these variables. What I want to point out is that we find a huge effect, as we would expect, for the social network hypothesis or the effect of migrant stock. Right, Countries that have a larger stock of migrants, if you increase it, it increases the bilateral flows by almost 3%. That's not surprising, but is by far the strongest uh, substantive uh, effect that we find uh, within, uh, within the data. Okay. What we think is actually the most interesting here is that the effect of citizenship rights is almost as big, I'm sorry, is bigger than the effect of distance, right? So what we know from the literature is that distance matters, right? It's a, it's a transaction cost. It costs me more to go from, from uh, Mexico to the UK than it does to go from Mexico to the United States or from Mexico to Canada, okay? And this has been one of the dominant arguments in the literature. We find that the effect of, of increasing citizenship rights by one standard deviation plays this 
plays a more important role than increasing distance by one standard deviation, or by increasing the unemployment rate by one standard deviation, or even increasing right-wing party support by one standard deviation. In fact, it's more important than sharing a border, sharing a common, uh, uh, it's as important as sharing a common colony, and it's more important than a common, uh, a common language, right? So substantively, we find this big effect of um, citizenship rights. Right? that it matters, it's something that has been ignored and it plays a really important role when we think about where migrants go. Now we can get at how important this is in another way as well, and this is where we can think about defying the law of gravity. Now I didn't do a very good job in motivating that title. Right? Some of you, if you're familiar with the economics literature on migration or on foreign trade, uh, know about these gravity models. Yes? Okay, so a gravity model, this is, this is, this is Isaac Newton, right? So the, the pull of force between two bodies is equal to the mass, the mass of these two bodies uh, minus the distance between the two, okay? And these gravity models have been used to explain flows of commodities, right? Bigger countries tend to trade more, but the further they are from one another, it decreases the amount of trade. Um, these gravity models have been found to matter in uh, finance and in migration. Again, you know, the bigger the size of the two countries, the distance between them. I should have said that at the beginning makes this slide a lot more uh, clever, right? It is very clever. Um, that's my opinion, right? It was, it was really clever, again, if I'd said it at the very beginning of the talk, right? So the political environment matters substantively and statistically, but the question is, is it going to differ the pattern of migrant flows that we would expect? The way we get at this is we look at two variables that would have that, that, that economics literature and the sociological literature say influence patterns of migration. So we look at the unemployment rate, right, labor market opportunities, and we look at distance. And our argument is that citizenship rights trump those factors, right? That citizenship, citizen, citizenship rights play a more important role than these two factors, that is to say, labor market considerations and distance play. So how do we do that? We simply interact those two variables, okay? And so what this line shows is, is the effect, the marginal effect of unemployment on immigration to a particular destination as we increase rights for the migrant. So let's assume migrants have no rights in a particular destination, okay? So a particular destination gets a zero on, on, on migrant rights. Um, that would apply to a country like uh, Switzerland uh, back, in, back in the 80s, okay? A country that receives a zero, right, no migrant rights, uh, unemployment has a negative effect, right? That's what we would expect, and that's what we find in the data, right? That unemployment has a negative effect on immigration to Switzerland, okay? That negative effect decreases, that is to say, it approaches zero, right? So the negative effect of unemployment decreases as we increase migrant rights up until we get to uh, the, the, top, the top quartile of migrant rights when the effect of unemployment goes away. Right? So when we're talking about a destination that has immigrant rates, immigrant rates of, of about six or eight, here we're thinking about um, some of the Scandinavian countries, uh, France for, for some time, Britain for some time, the United States, Canada, Australia, New Zealand. Once you get up here, unemployment actually has no statistically significant effect on, on, on flows of migrants. Right? So again, we're not saying that the economists are wrong, we're not saying that, that, that labor market considerations aren't important, but we're saying that other rights are more important. Okay, political rights matter more, okay? We do the same experiment interacting migrant rights with distance. Now here, 
the effect approaches zero, it never touches zero, okay? So distance still matters, right? In fact, I would have been really surprised if distance didn't matter at all, right? It would have said that people were gonna go a really far distance for political rights. I would have been a little skeptical of that result, okay? But we find that the effect, it's a pretty steep slope, okay? And we find that as you increase migrant rights, Remember, I'm gonna say the effect decreases, that's because we're approaching zero, okay? So as immigrant rights increase, the effect of distance between two destinations goes away, right? That is to say, it approaches zero or it becomes lesser. So that's how we think about uh, defining the law of gravity, right? The distance matters less as we take into account citizenship rights or the political environment. Okay, so how do we deal with the robustness of this result, right? Any statistical analysis, you know, you can tear any statistical analysis apart by saying do this, 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 and this. So in this paper, we do this, 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 and this, right? We include dyadic fixed effects. We include, we do dynamic panel estimators, negative binomial models, alternative measures of right-wing governments. The, the, the estimates shift around a little bit as one would expect, right? But the basic substantive uh, 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 effect doesn't go away, right? So what do we conclude? Well, we conclude the political rights matter, right? And this might be one of these things, um, where you might just kind of shake your head. In fact, when I was talking to my wife about this paper, she said, of course they do, right? Which made me feel great about all this work I've spent uh, on a paper, right? Um, but this is not something that's in the literature, right? I mean, the literature really says that it's, it's relative wages and it's social networks and it's distance that, that has an effect on how we think about where people go, right? So political rates matter and it matters more than, than I shouldn't have said income, it should be employment and almost as much as distance. And it also suggests here that destinations can engineer migrant flows. How? Change citizenship rights, move them around, alter them a little bit and see how that affects flows of migrants. Um, I can, we can talk about some extensions of this if you want, but I'll, I'll stop there and, 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 and take questions.